0: The Greeks had this concept of the diamond, which is force and sort of an entity, it depends on who's talking when, that connects you to your destiny, that connects you to the divine, that pushes you to go where you need to go and become who you need to become. Socrates actually referred to it. He said that he knew that he was making the right decision to drink the hemlock because his diamond, which normally harassed him about so many lesser things, was in complete agreement with him, was utterly silent when he said he was going to make this decision. And so it's this force, this entity that pushes you to become who you need to become and go where ultimately fate wants you to be. And in psychological terms jung was saying it is an urge to self-development it is an urge to fully individuate yourself and become not who you are told to be not who the world is trying to make you be but to become who it is that you yourself internally are striving to be ought to be and to become that the problem is that this is rarely a convenient thing
1: greetings future fossils this is michael garfield reporting for duty Episode 202, Mm. the podcast that explores our place in time. And, you know, other things also, right? Like, this is a show about all kinds of stuff. I'm really excited about this episode with caveat magister Benjamin Wax, the resident philosopher of Burning Man, who has appeared in a group setting on the show before, I'll link to that in the show notes. But today I get to share this conversation with Ben, caveat, that focuses on his life and work methodology. And I think that a lot of folks will really appreciate this because we have, on the one hand, all of the outward-facing scientific and philosophical forays into... mysterious unknown, but there's an internal horizon also, a horizon of discovery and development of individuation and maturation and transcendence that his book, Turn Your Life Into Art, really speaks to. And it's such a beautiful book. It's just delicious. It's full of amazing stories and He's such a masterful storyteller. And so here we are. Ben's the kind of person that you just uh, pull a cord and let write and write and write and talk and talk and talk. And I loved it. I loved this conversation. We took it into some very strange and interesting places that are pertinent to my own writing projects, specifically in as much as we can kind of establish a Jurassic Park, Disney, Meow Wolf, Burning Man taxonomy and talk about the ways that imagination and amusement and science and technology and art all come together. But a story for another time. Uh, Those of you who have been missing out on the Jurassic Park book club, We have three calls left to do on these two books by Michael Crichton. So join us on Substack or Patreon and get in the mix. The Discord conversation around this has been so immensely rich and I will be releasing the recordings from our first conversation as soon as I can. Now seems like a good time to shout out to new supporters. Jacob Foster of the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute a true homie of the highest order. D-I-S-I org. Check them out. They're doing amazing things. I'm going to get him on the show as soon as I can. Timothy Hare. Superb participant in that book club conversation. Brian the Barkeologist. Oh yes, Brian Fleming. Definitely want to follow his substack about dog behavior and chaos theory, if you're into that kind of thing. And uh, Stephen Fisher, who runs the delightful Facebook page, I acknowledge Psychedelic Class Warfare exists. Yes, all of you are wonderful people, and I'm glad that you have joined the ranks of folks helping me keep this show afloat. Everybody liking and subscribing and reviewing the show is putting food in the mouths of my children. And I know we're in another recession, but if you feel like stepping up, becoming a paid supporter finally, then know that also I edit to music and the music you're listening to now, I recommend playing on a separate device or separate browser tab while you're listening to this conversation. This is a soundtrack I was just commissioned to produce for the University of California at San Diego's Qualcomm Institute Gallery for a a retrospective on Biosphere 2 put together by Biospherian Mark Nelson, whom I've spoken to on the podcast in episodes 94 and 95, and he's an intensely cool guy and curated by Jakob Lilamos who is a very very interesting berlin based architectural visionary weirdo that i hope to get on the show soon as well so if you're not into the making regular monthly contributions thing i get it but you might want to roll over to bandcamp and grab the soundtrack to this biosphere 2 retrospective and then you know go walk around under some trees or something or on a beach and with that i thank you deeply here is a superb and winding conversation with caveat magister about how to turn your life into art How are you?
0: I'm all right. (laughs) No matter how much time I arrange for myself, I always seem to be pushing against some deadline. But I think you have it worse than me.
1: Oh, 2023, I think, is the singularity. Like, obvious now. It's clear. We're here. Things are crunched. One is trying to put clown cars inside clown cars. Yeah. So... Let's talk about your book.
0: Okay, let's talk about that.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. First, actually, I want to talk about you as a person. Who are you before you wrote this book? Like, Where do you come from? I like to tell
0: people I don't really have a from that I eventually outdistanced it. But okay. I don't know that this will go well, but sure. (laughs) Let's talk about me. How far back do you want to go? All the way back. All the way back. Taproot. Okay. There was always something different about me as a child. Little did I know that I was the chosen one spoken of in prophecy. But at the time, I had humble beginnings in the American Midwest, where I strove to build up the skills that would eventually lead me to greatness and to glory. So I don't know that we have to go all that far back. But as I talk about in the most recent book, Turn Your Life Into Art, there was always a sense that I had indeed growing up in the American Midwest and Living in a in academic background, but not a, a high flying one, that there was some kind of experience that should be out there that I didn't have access to that I was that could that was possible, but that I didn't know how to do and that I wasn't seeing around me. And on the one hand. It's probably not at all unusual for people to have a sense in their lives, even their young lives, that something is missing, something is different, there's something to strive for that strikes me as, as completely normal. But at the same time, a lot of the other people who have really put their time and effort into these kinds of experiences seem to have something similar that they talk about. So, so maybe that's relevant, maybe that's not. We're in the but Midwest. Mostly Indiana.
1: Excellent. I'm a Kansas City guy.
0: Okay. Love Kansas City. Missouri or Kansas?
1: Missouri. But yes. then we did the thing where my first burn in 2008, I left and hitched out on a bus to San Francisco, thinking I was going to get trim weed, and then fell through. The people I was working with were sick, and I had just read Rolf Potts's Vagabonding, and so... I was in this nexus of the the uncommon art of long-term world travel. And yeah, I ended up crashing at these people's spot in San Francisco for like a week before they kicked me out (laughs) and then was wandering around the bay for weeks with nothing to do and my guitar and all my clothing and stuff on my back. Anyway, but I want to hear about you.
0: Wanna ask you though, since you brought that up, what was that experience like? Was it filling? Did it bring you wonder? Was it hollow? What was that for you?
1: It initiated a long phase. Like this was so two thousand eight means I was, I guess, twenty four and I had no anchor in my life at that Mm -hmm. point. I thought I was going on to a PhD program, but I didn't. And so this, and then like Burning Man happened and then it was just like, and then it was rootless for three years, at least Mm -hmm. I had no address. Like I was couch surfing. I actually met Micah Daigle and Troy Dayton at the couch surfing mixer in San Francisco Mm -hmm. that, that year. And, and Jacqueline North, may she rest in peace. And yeah.
0: So it felt like the beginning of something just you had to go through the wilderness to get there
1: it launched me into a career of itinerant
0: mm-hmm.
1: e- exploration yeah yeah what about you yeah. though
0: well that that speaks to me because actually when i was around 24 i dropped out of grad school or attempted to it would ultimately be unsuccessful and headed out into the world for a number of years about 4 on what i called at the time a pilgrimage to a pilgrimage to a destination not of my choosing and I didn't spend much time in the West Coast or San Francisco at that point, but I did travel across the US and into Europe and the Middle East and eventually then come back to the US and bounce around for a while before first ending up in upstate New York for about five years and then eventually moving to San Francisco where I have now lived for longer than I've lived any place else in my adult life by a large margin, about 16 years now. And yeah, I know. How did that happen? Believe me, I ask myself that all the time. And I have thought a lot about leaving at various points only to eventually realize that for all that the San Francisco Bay Area is very much living life on the hard level in some ways, that if I were to go any place else, I would enjoy the journey, but I'd eventually try to recreate what it is that I already have here. And so maybe I shouldn't go at that point. That the time to leave is when I no longer want this life. But so your experience of long itinerance speaks to me. That that was a part of my life too.
1: Indeed. So, like, how did you wrapped up in Burning Man?
0: Right. So when I was living in upstate New York, there's a bit of a story here, but I figure that's what we're here for, so what the hell? Yeah. When I was in upstate New York, I met a an artist named Sandra Carr, and we immediately hit it off, became really deep friends, but she was in the process of leaving upstate New York. She had decided to buy an RV, pull her kids out of school, start homeschooling them and take the RV and travel all across the country. And so we only had a couple of months in the same place, but she left. And a few months later, I get a call from her and she tells me the story about how she'd been driving her RV through Nevada and she pulled into a Walmart parking lot and there were a bunch of other RVs in this parking lot and she wondered what was going on. And so she walked up to someone and she asked them, hey, what's happening here? And they said, oh, well, we're all going to Burning Man. And she said, Burning Man, what's that? And... And they tried to explain it to her. And she said, well, can I go? And these were back in the days when tickets were plentiful at the gate. And so they said, sure. And so she's she went. She had that experience. And she was now calling me from Colorado, where she was living with some people who she had met at Burning Man and telling me that I had to go and do this thing. And I said, wait, you want me to go across the country and travel into the desert To what? Look at sculptures for a week? That sounds like a terrible idea. I'm not doing that. And we (laughs) argued about it, and I absolutely refused. I couldn't imagine why I would want to do this. And eventually she said, okay, well, I'm going to invite you to come visit me here in Colorado, and we can go to some burner events and some parties that they throw. And I said, well, sure, I'll come visit you. That's easy. And so I went a couple of times. I went to a few events, and... I realized that I'm actually not a party person. I have never really gotten much out of just saying, hey, let's go to a party. There's going to be a bunch of people. There's going to be music. There'll there'll, there'll be DJs. There will be really bad booze. That does nothing for me. But these events, these things that they were throwing, I had to admit, they spoke to me in some way. There was something that I enjoyed, something going on here that I was not used to seeing in this context. So, okay, okay. I, I got more interested and a bit more engaged. And then A couple of years later, I was moving to San Francisco, I packed up all my things, put them in my car and drove across country. And while I was on the way, I stopped to visit some people as I was going. And one of those people was Sandra, who that year had a funded art piece, she'd gotten an art grant honorarium. And so she was in the process of making this piece. And so I stayed with her for a week, two weeks, something like that, and helped out a bit on the project. I'm not a visual artist or a sculptor. I have none of those skills, but I could run errands. I could help organize things. I could cook you know, for the people who are actually doing the work, that kind of thing. And when I got to San Francisco, which was the week before Burning Man, I got a call from Sandra, who was now on the road going to Burning Man to set up her piece. And she said, hey, one of my crew dropped out. And so I have his ticket. And since you actually helped on the piece. Would you like to go to Burning Man now? You can. You have a free ticket waiting for you at the gate. You You can camp with us. I'll take care of all of that. You just need to get a tent and a ride down here. Can you do that? And well, I was in San Francisco. I knew literally no one here aside from my girlfriend. And I did not have a job. And so there really wasn't a good reason not to at that point. Okay, screw it. I'm as pretty close to the neighborhood. All right, I'll get a ride on Craigslist. I'll buy a tent. I can go do that. And so I went and got into Burning Man that way and had a pretty good time. I did not have a transformational experience. I did not have one of those, yeah, I did not have one of those moments that you hear so much about where people go and their minds are blown and their lives are changed. That was not me. I I said, oh yeah, there's something here. This is pretty cool. I can see now why people do this. And when I went <laughs> back, to right, right, and I went back to San Francisco, and that might have more or less been it. Except, like I said, I didn't know anybody here, and I thought that perhaps volunteering for Burning Man would be a good way to meet people. I, I seem to like what they were doing. We seem to have something in common. It's actually, I since discovered that is not really true that because Burning Man is, or San Francisco is Burning Man's central office hub, or at least was at the time, that it was, it's really meeting, volunteering for Burning Man in any other place is a great way to meet people. Here, it's a great way to work on Burning Man. And I had not realized that at the time, but so I went to a volunteer fair that they had and I, I looked around, and I saw that they had a media team. And I said, Oh, I can do that. I'm a journalist, have that skill set. And I met action girl, Andy Grace. And she said, Oh, yeah, no, you'd probably be a good volunteer for us. But we're now accepting all our volunteer applications on the website. So I'm going to actually send you back home and log into our website and fill out the volunteer application. And when you have filled that out, just mention that you met me and we talked and we'll get you onto the team. And I said, Great. So I went home, I pulled up the website, I went to the volunteer section, looked at the volunteer application and was so disappointed. I was just devastated with disappointment because it was a perfectly ordinary volunteer application. There was nothing interesting or whimsical or artistic or funny about it. It was exactly what I would have filled out if I were volunteering for any other work the organization. And that wasn't what I was here for. I didn't want to do that. But then I thought, no, this is a participatory culture. I can fix this. I can do my part. And so I took a few days and created what I would like to think is still the most surreal volunteer application that they have ever received in the organization's 30-odd-year history. Every question I tried to fuck with in some way. Mm -hmm. For the question about what's your emergency contact, I believe I wrote something along the lines of, As a cynic, I believe that we are all fundamentally on our own. (laughs) As an alcoholic, what are you doing looking at my sister? In the event of an emergency, I will kick your ass. And for the utterly ridiculous question of where do you see yourself in five years? What are your goals? What would you like to achieve? I wrote a long Sprawling response about how what I really wanted to achieve in five years is to finally crush the amazing Spider-Man. That i had been working at this for so long, and I tried so many things, and yet everything that I tried, he seemed to somehow escape. I, I don't know. It was like he had some sort of spider sense that let him see that he was in danger, and I don't understand. I know that's ridiculous, but it was like that. But this time, I was going to get him because I had the perfect team and the perfect plan, and I went through all this detail about the absurd supervillains I was bringing in and the plan that i had to finally get him and i said the only thing that i really regret about this right now it's very exciting for me but the thing that makes me sad is that i haven't yet had a chance to talk this over and share it with my best friend in the world peter parker we used to be so close but we've been so distant recently and i don't get why that is but you know what we'll have plenty of time once i finally crush spider-man once i've destroyed spider-man i'll get that friendship back and we'll put it (laughs) on track so that's what i want to do and what i want to have achieved So when it was over, like I said, it took me a few days to put this all together, looked it over. I decided it was what I wanted and I sent it off. And I of course didn't hear back that day. I didn't hear back the next day. I didn't hear back that week. I didn't hear anything back in two weeks. I didn't hear anything back in a month. And eventually after about six months, I decided that this, I must've screwed this up, that I was too weird for Burning Man. This wasn't going to happen. And what could you do? So so I let it go and got on with my life. A year and a half later, I got a response from Burning Man. What I had not known, I could not have known, was that the media team had gone through a major shift. Leadership had left. Andy had just gotten appointed. She had no idea what she was stepping into. What year is this? My first year in Black Rock City was 2006. So this would have been... Oh, 2007, 2008, something like that.
1: Was Maggie Duvall part of that team at the time?
0: I don't believe she was part of it at the time. Yeah, I think
1: but... she'd she bailed already at that point. Anyway, go on.
0: Yeah. So, right, but they're, so they had basically gone as they were trying to figure this out, they're a solid group of team captains, and so they just they hadn't done any volunteer recruiting for all of that time, and now that was starting to bite them in the ass as they were running out of people to fill shifts, and so... They said, oh, shoot, we have to fix this. And so the woman who was in charge of volunteerism at the time, her name was Terme, wonderful person, amazing artist, said to Andy, okay, what we'll do is we'll go through all the applications we've gotten in the last two years, and we'll look for the person who should be our volunteer coordinator. And then we'll get them to help actually wrangle and recruit volunteers. And so they were going through all these applications. And the story goes that Terme came to mine, laughed her ass off printed it out, walked it over to Andy's desk, put it on Andy's desk and said, here's our guy. And Andy read it, laughed her ass off and sent me an email saying, oh my God, how did you fall through the cracks? Yes, clearly we need a volunteer coordinator. Would you like the gig? (sighs) And I waited a day and then sent Andy an email back saying, hey, Andy, wow, it's really good to hear from you. It's been a while. I'm glad you wrote, but I have to tell you, I'm with the Aspen Music Festival right now, and we're very happy together. They listen to me, and they get back to me when I ask for things, and so it's a very good relationship, and so I'm, thank you so much, but I think I'm happy need to stay where I am, sincerely, and then at the end, in parenthesis, I wrote in all caps, oh, who am I kidding? It's you. It's always been you. Yes, a thousand times, yes, and that's how I got started with Burning Man.
1: So how did you become the philosopher? the resident Um, philosopher. And then I do want to get to the book, but let's just, let's establish some context here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was that as the volunteer coordinator for the media team, I spent a lot of time talking with volunteers about Burning Man. And a lot of that was over email and group messages and things like that. And eventually Andy and Will Chase, were looking to revamp their the blog on their website, and Andy reached out to me and said, "Hey, we really like the way you talk about Burning Man. Would you consider writing for a website? Is that a thing that we could get you to do?" And I said, "No, I don't think so. I'm thank you. That's flattering, but no." And Andy wrote back, "Well, that I didn't expect that answer. Let's get a coffee and talk about it. Can we do that?" And I said, "Sure, I'll always get a coffee with you." So we sat down over coffee, and Andy said, "Why don't you want to write for a website?" And I said, because I've looked at your blog, and it's all perfectly good. It's all it's all fine. But it's all very raw rise and Burning Man great. Aren't we excited? And that's not what I'd want to do. I'd want to ask much more challenging questions, open ended questions about the culture, about how this works about what we're doing. And that's, I. it's completely understandable that you wouldn't want someone doing that on your own website the way that you know, it should be done. So I think I'm going to save us both the trouble and not ruin the perfectly good relationship we have. And And he said, oh, well, actually, that's what I want you to do. That's why I'm reaching out to you. That is exactly what I want you to do. So knowing that when you do it, and I said, I know you think you want that. that Isn't
1: self-immolation kind of the point? Like, I mean, not to, (laughs) not to call the last year I went to Burning Man was 2017 when the guy ran into the man. Mm -hmm. And I, that was, I haven't figured out how to get back after that Yeah, because, but anyway, that's. There is this sort of Ouroboros thing going on here.
0: There, ab- there absolutely is, but they tend to save that for the art more than they do for the actual organization. And uh, immolating yourself doesn't look good on federal permit applications. Absolutely, not. <laughs> yeah. So, so I said, I know you think you, you want that, but honestly, the minute I say something controversial, it's gonna, it's going you, know, you get blowback. It's gonna be a problem. And again, I'm just, I just see this going badly. And Andy said, okay, here's how serious I am. I'm just going to give you publishing credentials, okay? I'm just going to give you the ability to publish anything at any time on our blog, no editorial review process, no scheduling, no no any of that. You just publish whatever you want to publish, and you'll have the ability to do that. Now do you believe I'm serious? And I said, well... Okay, I still think this is going to go very badly. But if you're that serious, then yes, I'll give this a try. I will, I will see what I want to put out there. And this was somewhat controversial. Within the office itself, at that, at that point, I was a well established friend and collaborator with several Burning Man apostates, including Chicken John and John Law, both of whom I was friends with. And so there was some discussion about whether I could be trusted to have that kind of access. And I have to say, Andy really went to the mat for me. She said, no, you've told me what you want. You told me you want something interesting and thought leadership about Burning Man and you know that it goes deep. So this is the guy to do it. And we have to let him do that because that's the only way it's going to work. And so they let it happen, which I have to give them immense credit for. And it was successful beyond anything that... Uh, that I had imagined it became a, I became the standard bearer for the, uh, for the blog and for Burning Man for providing interesting thoughts about Burning Man. And so several years went by a couple of years and then out of nowhere, I got an email from Larry Harvey who I not only had not met yet, but who I had been avoiding meeting because as soon as I started writing what I was writing on Burning Man's website, My I got inundated by local burners who wanted answers from me about what the org was doing now and why they were doing this and that. And I would try to tell them, hey, I'm not in the room when these decisions are made. I don't make these kind of decisions. I'm just writing what I think on their website. And they said, Oh, yeah, right. There's no way that Burning Man would let you write what you write if you're not really on the inside. And I kept trying to tell them, No, I'm really not. And these conversations went very badly until finally completely by accident, I hit on the magic phrase that would was my get-out-of-jail-free card, which was, I've never even met Larry Harvey. <laughs> and as soon as I said that, people went, oh, well, if you've never even met Larry, you can't be that much of an insider. So, okay, never mind. And that allowed me to go on with my life as I was writing these things about Burning Man on Burning Man's site. And so it became essential for me to be able to keep saying that. And so I actually avoided several opportunities to meet Larry because I really it been a little much to to have that kind of Burning Man was there were a lot more controversies within Burning Man's community back then about about things. And so it was so it worked for me to not have to be in that center of things. But then out of nowhere, I got an email from Larry saying that he's been reading my work and following it. And he's very interested in meeting with me and talking with me. So could I, could I set up an appointment to meet him with a secretary? You, and-
1: can I ruin your situation, please? Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really put me in this point where I was where I had to decide, okay, what kind of person am I? Am I the sort of person who says, no, I'm sorry, I can't meet you because ruin my street cred. Can I do that? And I ultimately decided that no, I was not that guy. So so I made an appointment and Larry had me come visit him at his apartment. And so I came over and I rang the bell and got buzzed up and went to his apartment and walked in. And 8 hours later I left asking myself what just happened? What the fuck was that? Now, this is this was not actually that uncommon a First meeting Larry story. A lot of people have stories about how they met Larry for the first time and got involved in these long, elaborate conversations. But eight hours is the longest that I've heard yet. If somebody has a longer one, I haven't heard that. And the truth is he and I profoundly hit it off. We really did. It was a beautiful meeting of the minds to the point where I was actually wondering if I was being pranked. If somehow this people had briefed Larry on what I wanted to hear, and they were fucking with me by having, by by having that level of simpatico agreement, but no, we we really just just completely hit it off and became became very close friends. And when he founded the Philosophical Center, which was part of Burning Man's charter, Larry had insisted that there be a specific part of the organization dedicated to Burning Man philosophy to the ideas of Burning Man, the history of Burning Man, to do intellectual leadership, he invited me to be a founding member along with Stuart Mangrum. And that's really how that's how that all happened. Awesome. I I became a philosopher because Larry started calling me a philosopher, basically.
1: Fair. So now let's get to it. We've had the salad. Now let's have the meat and the potatoes. The book... I want to yeah. talk about psycho magic. I want you to introduce yeah. people to this because I suspect that a lot of our listeners, I'm going to shout out to all of the meta modern magic weirdos, scout and folks who Naomi most obviously, who yeah. you were on the show once with her already yeah. and Mitch Mignano and all of these people, Connor Habib. There's like lots of people that Jake Coburn. Pretty much everybody that's been on this show that has been to Burning Man, Psycho Magic has been a thread on the show. But I want you to give us authoritative introduction to this subject, because you do such a great job of it in this book. And
0: go. Okay. So this is book tour 101. So psychomagic. First of all, I cribbed the name from Alejandro Hodorowski, so let's be clear on that. I did not come up with the name. It's his term, and I am very much working off of his concept. So let's give due and props and lineage acknowledgement there. Hodorowski's primary point is that our conscious selves are a very small sense of who we are in total, that the vast majority of who we are is actually inaccessible in some way to our conscious selves. And you can take that on several levels. You can take that on a purely materialistic level. There are neurons firing in your mind right now, and you are not aware of it at all. Your cells are dividing. You might or might not be aware of your heart beating at any moment. But the point is that physiologically, on even that basic level, a whole lot of things, a whole lot of very important things are happening that are not accessible to your conscious mind. You can take that at a psychological level as well. You have things that you have repressed, you have things that you are on autopilot for, you have schema and framing that you live in, but are not consciously aware of, you have things that you project out into the world and patterns that you inadvertently repeat. All of these stuff that is lumped into the idea of the unconscious and subconscious minds are things that you are not generally consciously aware of, but that nevertheless have an immense impact on your day-to-day life on everything about how you experience the world. And then if you want to go there you can talk about it spiritually. You can talk about the spirit and the soul and how we are affected by these things. We are these things in a profound way, but we don't have access to them. We can't point at them, we can't we can't scratch them when they itch. We don't even notice necessarily in a direct way when they do. And so all of these things are vital to who we are and how we engage in the world. And the problem is, Hodorowski said, that when you are trying to change your life or do something profound with yourself, these aspects of yourself that are outside of your conscious mind are what you need to be in connection with, but we always try to communicate them with through them with the tools of our conscious minds, right? We talk to them as though they were our conscious selves. And the problem is that's not a language that they speak. Our unconscious selves do not speak the language of pep talk. They do not speak the language of rational argument. They don't do charts and graphics. And, you know, that none of that actually works for them. And so the idea is that if you want to Reach the deeper parts of yourself. You have to speak a language that they understand. And those deeper parts speak the language of symbolism. They speak the language of art. They speak the language of magic. They speak the language of archetypes and they speak the language of action. They respond to things happening and to powerful symbols, not to carefully constructed sentences and rational arguments. And so the art of speaking to the deeper parts of ourselves in the language they understand is what Hodorowski termed psychomagic, That you use these tools, these languages of the unconscious self to get it to pay attention and to react and to engage in a way that it normally would not. And whether or not you think of that as literal magic, it certainly feels like magic when it happens. It feels like the world is in is different than you thought it was, and much more is possible than you imagined. And things that seemed like they were immovable boundaries are suddenly very permeable. And so It is, in many ways, the art of – it's an art form that uses the world itself as its medium in order to speak to the deeper parts of yourself and make what seemed previously impossible suddenly apparent and engage – something that you can engage with.
1: And then there's this whole piece of it that you expound upon in the book about Jung and the diamond, and I'd love to hear you unpack that for people too now.
0: Yeah, so – The notion which Jung, like Freud, like all the preeminent psychologists of that period, often went back to the ancient Greeks for their terminology and for their reference points, which is where you get the Oedipus complex and the death and life impulses, the natos and eros and things like that. And the Greeks had this concept of the diamond, which is force and sort of an entity, it depends on who's talking when, that connects you to your destiny, that connects you to the divine, that pushes you to go where you need to go and become who you need to become. Socrates actually referred to it, that he said that he knew that he was making the right decision to drink the hemlock, because his diamond, which normally harassed him about so many lesser things, was in complete agreement with him, was utterly silent when he said he was going to make this decision. And so it's that, in the Greek context, it's this force this entity that pushes you to become who you need to become and go where ultimately fate is want wants you to be. And in psychological terms, it Jung was saying it is an urge to self-development. It is an urge to fully individuate yourself and become not who you are told to be, not who the world is trying to make you be, but to become that, to become who it is that you yourself internally are striving to be, ought to be. And the problem is that this is rarely a convenient thing. Personal growth of that kind does not necessarily fit in with the lives we have. It doesn't work well with a nine to five job. There are all kinds of responsibilities that the world wants to put on you. And so, on the one hand, the diamond can be a tremendously joyful force. You're, if you if it's working with you, if you're or rather if you're working with it, then it seems like synchronicity happens on your way. Opportunities come up. It's a joyful process. On the other hand if you're working against it, if you're pushing it down, if you're saying, no, it's not, this isn't convenient right now, I have other things to do, I have other priorities, then the diamond can become a destructive raging force, which is pretty amoral in the way that it will wreck your life in order to get you to pay attention to things that that deep down you feel like you ought to be paying attention to. And the notion with the diamond in psychomagic is that, and here I should say I'm moving away from the strict Khodorovsky interpretation. I'm talking moving now into what I've called the San Francisco style of psychomagic, the San Francisco school of psychomagic. But the idea is that you have, in the diamond, you have an ally on the inside of someone's head when you are engaged in psychomagic. Because all of psychomagic really happens in The heads, in the experiences, in the psyches of the people who are experiencing it. It's not what you do out there. It's what happens in there. And this is different from the way that we generally think about conventional arts. So, for example, if you are painting a painting, the painting exists out in the world. That's where it's happening. That's what it is. The painting is the object. It is the thing. If you are composing a symphony, well, the symphony is it's the music that's being played, it's the sheet music. It's happening out in the world. Psychomagic only exists at all if the some part of the unconscious psyches of the people who are experiencing it start to perk up and say, oh, this is interesting. I can work with this. There's something I can do with this. And in that, the diamond is your ally in this. Because if you can create conditions under which someone's diamond or someone's psyche more generally says, oh, wait a minute, this is interesting. I can use this for self-development. This is a direction I want to go. Then action will start happening on the inside and it will start to move in that direction. Psychomagic as an art form is not about saying A, B, and C or creating X, Y, and Z. It's about creating the conditions under which something will happen in someone's inner psyche, in that part of themselves that goes on below the surface. You're not saying what's going to happen. You're creating the conditions under which they are going to have this kind of reaction. And then you don't tell it what to do. You follow where it goes. And so in that sense, you are trying to reach their diamond in a sense and say, okay, I've created these conditions. Where are you going to go with this? And then you facilitate that.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Yes. Perfect. That's what I want this conversation to Focus on like like a solar hit. You're taking like, like mm-hmm. a lens. I 2005 when I visited the University of New Orleans and we sat on the levee. It was right before Katrina. My my friend and I sat on the levee and took a lens and smoked weed. Which is like anyway, I want to pin here into something that you bring up on page 74 of your book. Because this, I did exactly the wrong thing in this regard. And I just want to loop out here and bring this up. He said, the phenomenon of changing your life after having this kind of art experience is common enough that it's spawned a warning aphorism. Don't marry your parakeet. It means that right after you get back from Burning Man, don't make any sudden life changes, which is exactly what I did. And yet it was precisely what was required of me by my diamond, which was this being that I was, I had, I really just discovered like in that moment, like that mm-hmm. time when I was like, I was cut loose and into, into the bay with no map other than just, I had a plastic map. This is like pretty Google Maps, right? Like I had a right. laminated map I was marking with a Sharpie. And so I wrote about this for Reality Sandwich back in the good old days before it was co-opted by Delic Corporation. And I'll send you this essay because I think you'll get a kick out of it about how Terrence McKenna says, don't give into astonishment. But I gave in to astonishment and in, that was the call of my diamond. And mm. in so doing, I learned to listen to my intuition and learn to know, you know, have no compass. So what do I use? You take a left or a right out of the door when you walk out running left. Okay, great. And then that brings you into this thing. And so I, I, this is, there's a story in your book also about a garden party. And I'd love to hear you tell that, like weave that into this and that story and how, destiny and choice and synchronicity and magic are all mixed up into this thing. And then Mm -hmm. this, it is like, there's this admonition not to, not to radically transform your life. But in fact, that Mm -hmm. is precisely also the point. So like, let's talk about that.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I think that because again, I've, we've had similar experiences here I threw myself into this long period of travel, many years ago, too. And actually, I've done that sort of thing several times. And so I tend to be with you, actually, that in many ways, marrying your parakeet is exactly what you want to do. But I think that the admonition is a useful one, because people need to understand that if they're actually going to do that, they really are throwing open the doors of possibility in their life. And it is not going to be the same. Later in the book, I talk about a joke that I had with the artist Robin Zero, that if we were to ever get, you know, a a group of people who are really good at this together and have regular meetings, we would call it the life ruiners guild. and <laughs> the, the, And the idea would be as much as anything that we're ruining our own lives, that the more we do this, the more we follow our intuitions, the more we listen to this, the more we are blowing up our lives. And we don't mean that in the sense of everything gets worse. We mean that conventionally speaking, it's hard to have a conventional life when you are following this, that it is going to it is going to screw up your priorities. Like I was saying before, the the diamond can actually be violent in some ways against the conventional things that it feels are holding you back from truly becoming. And so it can, my, my career as a climbing journalist in some ways, got ruined when I discovered that I really could bring truth and beauty into the world. Because the more you focus on truth and beauty, the less you are going to play the game of, Oh, I'm going to put out bullshit content for, for it looks good on algorithms. It's very hard to have these deeper, passionate, unconditional values in life and Live in a way that is cooperative with the world around you, so it really matters that people understand just as a, just as an ethical precept, if nothing else, it matters that people understand that if they're really going to do that if they 're really going to cross this threshold, that things are at the very least going to get extremely weird, and that in, in many ways you may be blowing up the safe life that you have made for yourself so- yeah
1: and in fact, those years of my vagabonding my my partner thrice engaged we and married innumerable times informally right never legally Mm. but we've been together since 2004 we have two kids now but like she and i went to burning man together and that Mm. and it was that first time and and i left i conditions of my departure were in order to hitch a ride to san francisco i had to leave before the temple burn and so she and i split at that point, when it really felt like a, it was like one of, I think we broke up three times at Burning Man. Oh, Week. Wow. And then we got married like on Saturday night, and then, then we left, and then it was a turmoil. It's like, you're absolutely correct that the, in order to surf this stuff, you end up throwing yourself into some extraordinary chasms. And yeah. So, but I want to hear about the garden party. Sure.
0: Sure. So this was an event where some people had taken a private space, a lush garden area, and turned it into a sort of musical extravaganza where there were a bunch of different sort of glades in it. And they had put musical instruments in these different glades. And then at night... Several hundred of us, yeah, maybe a hundred or so. I don't know, maybe several hundred uh, went in, dressed in formal wear, at a no phones event, and wandered around at night in the dark, going from glade to glade and seeing these spaces that were set up and hearing people play on the instruments. And it was just, it was a sort of a magical experience in and of itself. But before we'd gone in, some friends of mine had said, "Hey." we want to stay with us, stay close to us while we're all wandering around here because there's a ritual we want to do with you. We have the thing that we want to do with you. So make sure we can find you because it's no phones. And I said, yeah, sure. No problem. And then we immediately got separated and I was in a strange headspace. This event happened after Larry had died. And like I said, we'd been very close friends and his big memorial at the Castro theater had been just the night before. And so I was actually in a wanted to do whatever my friends wanted me to do, but also I was actually in a good place, wandering around this strange and wonderful environment at night, and just coming across what I came across, and just being in the present moment. And so I actually was perfectly comfortable. Just oh well, we'll have to do that some other time. And it was getting very late. It was getting towards one in the morning, which was when I agreed that okay, we're going to start packing it up and heading out, and I was in this on this trail in one area, and I figured, okay, I'm going to finish this trail, and then I'll leave the space and go home, and that's what I'm going to do. That's my plan now. And then, off in the far distance, I heard a piano because you know pianos were one of the instruments that people had brought in and real ones, not just keyboards, playing Leonard Cohen's "Hallelujah," and I immediately picked up and focused on that. This was a song that. It has a great deal of meaning for a whole lot of people. It is, in many ways, our modern, secular, sacred music. But it was very particular for me at that moment because I had sung that song at Larry's Memorial the night before. It had been what had turned out to be one of the great musical moments of my life, and seeing that in front of a you know Castro theater, it was a very cathartic moment. It was one of those musical experiences where the crowd is completely with you, and you're all just writing this and elevating this and oh my god it's amazing and so i i hear this and and a part of me says oh i should go over there and then i'm just like no that's ridiculous what am i talking about that's just somebody's playing that song i don't know how to make a beeline for it where did that even come from so i'm going to do what i plan to do i'm going to walk along the trail and go home and that's what's going to happen and so i finished my little trail walk and they've started now people are singing it i can't hear which lyrics they're on because it's like i say it's off in the distance but there are very clearly a bunch of people now singing to that and again i have this impulse of i must go there now and i like, what in the world is this that doesn't that's ridiculous i don't own this song it's not like sing hallelujah i have to be part of that what come on they uh, other people get to play this so nope, I'm going home. So I, I head towards the exit that is, is best for me. And turns out that actually takes me right past the glade where the piano is, where the people are singing. And now they're still singing. And now I'm like, okay, I have really strong impulse to go over there. And I'm like, no, come on, let other people sing this. This is whatever they're doing is not about me. I've had a good night calling it. And then as I'm walking maybe 20 feet away from them, and nobody sees me or anything, because like, say it's dark, it's night, the only light is at the piano. The person who's playing the piano keeps playing it, but doesn't start another verse. And he says, This is this would this would be someone named Henry, who I'd later become friends with. He says, Okay, so I know Henry there are more Andrews, verses. That's, Henry we, Andrews, yes. Yeah. Who's who in the, the weird metamodern magical. Circles. And also
1: a very active member of the Future Fossils listening mm, Yeah, this was Henry this Andrews. Community. Yeah, Henry. wonderful. Yeah.
0: yeah. Henry says, okay, I know there are more verses, but I don't know what they are. Does anyone else know any other verses? At <laughs> that point, something in me just goes, okay. And so I walk over and I start singing the next verse. And there's this immediate reaction, people cheer, it's exciting. And we sing a couple more verses and then bring it to an end. And it's another really much smaller group, but really triumphant sort of moment. And when we're done, and the applause and the cheering is all finished, I feel a hand on my shoulder. And it's Robin, one of the people who wants to do wanted to do the ritual with me at the some point tonight. And I look at her and say, Oh, this is a coincidence. And she says, No, it's not. We couldn't find you. And so we created a summoning ritual, a magical summoning ritual to get you here. We got her on the piano, and I told everyone we we're going to sing hallelujah, and if we just keep singing hallelujah, he will show up. And I swear to God, Michael, it, I felt weirdly summoned and compelled by this whole thing. It's, it was not only really psychologically acute of them to do that, it felt like I was resisting a call this whole time, and eventually it became irresistible, and I had to do it. But the point is, it worked. It absolutely worked. So that's interesting delivery.
1: because in that sense, the call, the destiny, the summoning, there's something else going on here. And I've had Naomi on the show in episode 149. She and I and a couple other folks talked about was Tada Hazumi and Dare Sohei. Dare's especially unhappy about that episode and wants me to remove it, but that's it's my show. Anyway, the anyway. we talked about egregores. So Something that I've noticed in my own experience in life is that it's one thing to think of it in a kind of a simpler union sense, like the anima is, oh, it's your own, you know, it's the feminine aspect of yourself, or the animus, or identify as in that way. And then, but there's something transpersonal and communal about this, or that answering the call is answering the call of a group of people that are actually mm-hmm. like invoking this and so in the sense that an egregore being for the five people listening to this show that don't know what this is cuz I'm obsessed with it and I talk about it all the time that these entities that appear at, as like as a moire at the intersection of people where like where Jesus says where three or more gather in my name there I am you know, And my relationship with my wife, as I've discussed numerous times on this show, dating back all the way to the Paisley ontology episode with Michelangelo, another fabulous burner. That relationship was the first unofficial wedding of that relationship was consummated by this being I call the angel squid, which was accidentally invoked during a... Partnered acid trip that she and I took in 2007. And we switched t shirts because I was feeling rather dissociated and I felt like I needed to be more incarnate or something. And she was wearing Mm -hmm. a shirt screen printed with a squid. And I was wearing this shirt that had like, it was from this event that used to go on in Lawrence, Kansas, where we met at the University of Kansas called the Red Balloon To Do, which was this massive art walk open houses all over town and everybody's got galleries and performances set up inside their homes. And the shirt was just gorgeous. It was this pink shirt with the two red balloons that had eyes on them, but it was like this, the sense of like a discarnate observer. And I was like, well, or actually it was a yellow shirt. It was like, well, so what do we do if we, what do we switch these sh- shirts? And we switched the angel shirt and the squid shirt. And then as mm. soon as we did, it was like, we had closed a circuit and then- mm. This thing, this third thing opened its eyes between us, the Egregore. And that kicked off this profound investigation that I had with this. I had no idea that the phenomenon of Ishta Devas, all of this stuff, none of this was familiar to me and was something I'd stumbled upon in the way that you stumbled upon the piano. And so, like, this is a key piece of it. I don't know really what I'm asking here. But I think that, I guess one thing I want to talk to you about for sure, and I mentioned this to you in email before our conversation, was the piece about danger and risk, right? And you say in your book that we can't guardrail these experiences for people because, okay, because this is where I want to land this because I come from a Disney family. My father worked for Disney for 20 years. And before that, he worked for Universal Studios. I grew up in amusement Mm. parks. And so all of my experience of psychomagical design and Burning Man and these kinds of things is held in contrast to the experience of going in through the back door of Walt Disney or Universal, like being going through the handicapped entrance, cutting the line Mm. and riding back to the future 25 times or, but also like being there when the dinosaur ride opens at animal kingdom and being on the first group of people to go through that ride and the ride is maladjusted. And I get a headache because the car is shaking so badly that they have to turn it down afterwards. And so like, there's like there's things about Disney that where it's like, you can't create magical experiences for people without some element of danger and Mm -hmm. risk. And yet they do everything in their power to mitigate it, to downplay it, or when people die in the park to completely whitewash it, pave over Mm. it, act like it never happened. Yeah. And so this is, again, to the point of, when I hear my friend Maggie Duvall talking about the 90s in Burning Man, right? And like the 96, 97, these years that were just like absolutely insane. People were still bringing guns, and yeah. this kind of thing. So yeah. So there's a fork in the road here, but I want to make sure that we have time in this conversation to get to those two things. One, one being the way in which one's destiny is not merely one's own. Mm-hmm. And then also this point about the fact that I'm standing here looking at all of my like Jurassic park memorabilia. I was at the world premiere Jurassic park in 1993 yeah. universal studios, June 8th. What? You could see the boom. Cause they had, the- the reel was maladjusted. The reel was off. And so when Dennis Nedry's getting spat at by the Dilophosaurus, you can see the boom mic hanging in the shot. Okay. So like, there's this thing about you can't John Hammond wants to create a safe experience you know, for his mm. guests. And you can't do that. They're dinosaurs. Like you can't have a transformational experience. That's just, and so this is the problem I've had with transformational festivals from day one is that they're really going to transform you. It's not merely a consumer experience where you, you, know, right. you clip in, you get your ticket, you come out, and mm-hmm. oh, cool, you, you get to see all the things you want. And it's like, oh, and there's no, in most of these places right. due to the Rave Act, there's no harm reduction team on staff. <laughs> okay, I'm done ranting. You're awesome. Go for it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. No, I. this is one of the more complicated and confounding aspects of this, which is that these experiences, if they are going to work, they cannot be benign. Just how dangerous they are in any particular area, physical danger, as opposed to psychological danger, as opposed to social danger, there's they don't have to have all of those at once and they can have different odds, but they can't be benign, which is to say they can't be a simulation of themselves. They can't be a, they have to be real stakes. This is one of the, the principles that I outline in Turn Your Life into Art, that the stakes have to, more potent your experience is, the more the stakes have to be real. And real stakes means there is risk, there is danger, something could go wrong. And I don't want to say that Ethically, that means we just ignore danger. We say, ha ha, we are devil may care. Now, of course, it is, it is ethical and right to be concerned about the danger that people are going through, the risks they are undertaking. But it's, there, there's a way in which I applaud Disney for wanting to make a very safe park. Of course, we want it to be safe. Damn right. But if there are certain kinds of experiences that you are going for, it turns out that those experiences cannot be benign. There has to be risk attached and risk can be terrifying. Risk means there is an element of danger. And I think part of the reason it works, first of all, is just the dangerous experiences tend to be more potent in and of themselves. But also because again, the essence of psychomagic is does that underlying part of your psyche, does the deeper part of yourself perk up and take notice and say, Oh, this is interesting. And that happens when stakes are real. It doesn't happen When stakes are not, it doesn't happen in the same way when you are watching a movie, when you are going through a simulation. There's nothing really at stake here. Passive consumerism, or even to some extent, active consumerism, just if nothing can go wrong, then nothing can go really right either. And the result is that you have an experience that is inert, that is benign. The way that I put this in the book is that if you take Disney, and you acknowledge, first of all, just how brilliant all of the Imagineers are, that they are the best in the world at creating these kinds of experiences. And then you give them this nearly unlimited budget to create some kind of experience and do what they want to do. You'll get something amazing, but you will never get an experience that Disney can create that using those, that approach that is as profound and powerful as breaking into Disney would be. The reality of just that simple thing of, Hey, we are going to break and enter into this theme park. It's going to be profound and powerful and memorable and affecting on a level in which no ride can be. And this is one of the essential points of psychomagic, that you get to this transformative potential. You get that possibility because something is actually at stake. And it very often can be physical risk, but it just as easily, and certainly in the kind of work that I do, is emotional risk is is profound truth coming up is deep stuff that you have repressed that you don't want to acknowledge or that is you know powerful in your life but that is for some reason been hidden is coming up with that and that does not only does that not feel psychologically safe that is in fact dangerous to the life that you are living if this stuff comes up if it is acknowledged then you not only have the opportunity to change, but you may have the change. And that can have ramifications for the way you've organized your life or the relationships you have in it, just for the way you think about yourselves. That kind of danger is where the profoundly transformative stuff is because precisely because it is real and because it gets the unconscious to say, okay, this is interesting. In a world full of simulacra and fakes and curated experiences, this is something that I can actually work with. That, yeah, that's so key to this as an art form.
1: I don't know if you've read Carl Hiassen's Team Rodent: How Disney Devours the World. This guy really. No, was a story in this book about exactly that thing about people who, in the night from nineteen ninety eight, group of kids who broke into, I guess, the kids, teenagers, or they broke into Disney in Disney World in Florida, and I guess now it may be a little different. Governor DeSantis is is. His cannon pointed at Disney's political yeah. exclusion, but Disney historically has its own fire department. It has its own zip code, its own postal service. It's like, it's a weird sort of nuclear state within Florida. It's its own world. Mm-hmm. And so there are not, it's not at the time anyway, it was not really in a clear police jurisdiction. And so that the cop has private security that Disney uses to troll the parks after dark did what they should, what they were deliberately, you know, they were told not to do, you know, which was to pursue these people in a car chase and sirens on. They ran the break in party out of the park and then, right outside the gates of Disney World, there the the right as the pursuer is turning back because it was no longer their zone. The people who had broken into the park, their car was struck by another car, and they were killed. Oh my god! And I just bring that story up as just a way of saying that I don't know. I don't know why I bring that up, but it's a story that I don't hardly anyone I know knows. Mm. So it's it was a serious legal case. And I pray that my father doesn't listen to this episode <laughs> because it's like, this is the mouse paid for my lunch. But at the same time, mm-hmm. this is the world that we live in. And so But I want to double back now. And I want to hear you talk about the community piece of yeah, this
0: uh, of yeah. yeah. The egregore piece. Actually, But before, before I get to that, let me mention that, The way that I have found is both most ethical and most efficacious to handle these dangerous aspects of psychomagic is not to create better guardrails, because that just ultimately makes your experience more inert, is to get better at handling danger. That the right approach is to get better at being with people and being supportive of people as they go through these dangerous moments of being better able to react to these threatening situations as they come up. That getting more familiar with danger and better at handling it is the way in which you can keep these experiences potent and keep people as safe as possible. That this is a better approach and it's one that I think is crucial to the continued, let's call it potency, of places like Burning Man that are trying to straddle this line of, okay, we are responsible, we are safe, but also we are really trying to create environments where these kinds of experiences can happen, that it matters that we get good at handling danger. Burning
1: Man, a f- famous phrase is safety
0: third. Safety third,
1: right. So what are the, what's one and
0: two? Did you ever get that sorted out? So comes out of a context in which In early Burning Man, especially early DPW setup kinds of things, people were doing incredibly dangerous things that people hadn't done before. There wasn't a context of, oh, well, this is the way we've done it before, so we know how to do this. They were very much making it up as they go along. And nobody ever came up with what one and two is specifically, although I would imagine it would be some combination of self-expression and fun. But the idea was we don't put safety first. There's something else we're going for. And... A really important aspect of this, in fact, my my notion of get better at handling danger comes out of this conversation that I was having with the former DPW foreman, and he's actually currently Burning Man's OSHA director. It actually has one. But uh, Tony Coyote Perez, who was saying that Safety Third worked because in those days you had people who really understood what kind of danger they were getting into. They had played around with fast cars. They knew how to use all kinds of tools. They could put safety third because they were actually really good at doing this. And safety third becomes a lot less feasible when you have people coming in fresh off fresh out into this environment who don't know how to use tools who don't understand how how engines and chemicals work who are not familiar with the with handling rough vehicles that at that point safety third is a problem safety third works as an ethos when you have people who are very familiar with how date with how danger works it's way more problematic when you don't and this is a this is an acculturation issue for burning man this is a genuine struggle that they have but it also i think pulls us back into then the communal question, right? Because there are things that you can do when you have that kind of community and things that are much harder to do when you don't. The communal aspect of this has been a very interesting development for me. First of all, I wrote this book, I wrote Turn Your Life Into Art, in some ways as a how-to manual for how to do something, for how to do these kinds of things And also as a love letter to a scene that I really do feel is past, that it's not that nobody is doing psychomagic in San Francisco anymore, far from it, but that the energy has shifted from psychomagical experiences to immersive and interactive theater experiences, which is not the same thing. It has many of the same trappings, but it is not the same thing. And you can tell that in no small part because psychomagical experiences are much harder to commodify and monetize. Immersive and interactive experiences, you can do those seven days a week with a matinee on Sunday and keep repeating it and have it go basically the same way every time and be perfectly safe and you can sell your tickets. Psychomagical experiences are much more dependent on what is happening in this moment with these people and the stakes are real and it's not terribly safe and it is not only harder to replicate but the more you do it the less potent it becomes because it starts to be routine and so the inner psyche stops picking up and stops being interested it's really hard to scale psychomagical experiences it's really hard to make them consistent you're working against all of that. They are not the same kind of art form at all. And the experiences of psychomagic, and I'm not saying no one has ever had a transformational experience at a immersive theater production, but the conditions are much less likely. Psych- psychomagical artists, it's much harder to do in an, in a repetitive way. And so you had this amazing scene in San Francisco that I was privileged to come in as the last third of where People were really doing this for each other, where you had this underground where everyone was creating unique rituals for one another and unique psychomagical experiences as a part of near daily life. And it was extraordinary, and it is. It is not happening now, and it's not happening for perfectly good reasons. People want to use their art to pay their rent. I get that. Amen. That is. It is much easier to do if you just cut back on the psychomagic and cut back on the psychomagic, and suddenly you're doing an alternative version of what Disney is doing, and there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Forget about Meow Wolf now because I'm here in Santa Fe, and I love Meow Wolf. I love it so much, but yeah. this. It is the case that as that organization has scaled, much as an organism as mm. it scales, and here i here. I'm bringing in the complex systems piece, right? That a child starts out very young and playful and full of exploration, mm-hmm. information, and discovery. And then as mm-hmm. it gets old, it becomes more and more risk averse because right. the bigger you are, the harder you fall, and the more right. you have to lose. And right. so, like suddenly, like the last time I went to a concert, and they're like, like suddenly, meow wolf is digging through people's bags and confiscating their drugs. That wasn't always the case. And say in this book, a couple things. One, you say fiction is the enemy of psychomagic, which is interesting. Even though when I took my dad to Meow Wolf, he was at first on plus because he's like, why this is never going to work is because narrative, at least in the Santa Fe exhibit, is not obvious. People want a story. They want to be sucked in and pulled through a tube of narrative. In my words, not his. And then you also say, No one's life was ever changed by riding a roller coaster, and I think that. So this is true that Meow Wolf does emphasize narrative, and that he was wrong, but it's a very it's a networked, Mm non-linear. In that way, I feel like Meow Wolf is the sort of midpoint between Mm -hmm. Burning Man and Disney in that Mm -hmm. respect. In that, like they are trying to give people more choice, more autonomy, more opportunity for find things out for themselves, mm. but they've run up against this problem that you're identifying, yeah. which is that you can't do this at scale as an institution, as a capitalist entity, mm. without running up against these kinds of concerns.
0: Right. Yeah. No, psychomagic does not scale well. And that is, the more I've talked about this in the aftermath of writing the book and going around and touring and talking to people, the more clear it is that no, it does not scale. Well. It does not scale well, and in fact, the things that you have to do to scale, which is to create it, make it systemic, create it systematic. You're uh, you're making it more of a mechanism. We go, we do this, and we're taking out all the interstitial bits and focusing on what everyone has to hit. That that makes it less personal. That makes it less possible for people to follow their own diamonds through this. You're supposed to follow the storyline. And you're supposed to you're supposed to be at place A, place B and place C. And that means you cannot wander off in your own direction. And so suddenly, you know, those parts of yourself that might otherwise be appealed to, they're not interested anymore, because it's not their story. It's not about them. It's no, it doesn't scale well. And that means that means that you can't half ass it. If you're going to do this, you have to throw you have to really throw yourself into it. And that is, I think. One of the crucial lessons for me about Burning Man, actually, that the 10 principles only work when you are constantly applying them as questions you're asking. Can I get more inclusion? Can I get more participation? Can I get more immediacy? Not, hey, I've done X, I've done this, so I've checked off the immediacy box. I've done this, so we've checked off radical self-expression. Are people in costumes? Yes, okay. We're radically self-expressing ourselves. Are, are people dancing to rhythm? Yes, okay. That's communal effort. And when you look at it like a checkbox, it loses all of its power and potency, and that's, that's very much an aspect of psychomagic. You, th- you throw yourself into it, and it works. When you start to when you start to abstract it and try to just get the important bits, then it doesn't. It really doesn't. And this makes psychomagical communities really extraordinary because they are communities that are going to bring out this level of authenticity and passion and risk commute in its members. And when you are engaged, not just in a personal risk, but in a communal risk, then, you know, you bond. Maybe in some ways it's trauma bonding, but it's also authenticity bonding. <laughs> you are bringing parts of yourself out and letting them be seen and letting them be witnessed and engaging with them with others. Their psycho magic can have just a purely personal impact, but for me, so much of it has involved getting Newer, better, more intense, more profound ways of connecting with other people. And when you have other people who are willing to step in and perform these roles, engage in these practices, it makes exponentially more powerful. The experience of having other people who are, who will say, yes, this is something that, this is something that you want. This is something that you need. Or even just here's an experience that I want to try putting you through. It may go places, but we're going to go there. That not only creates a profound bond, but also, and this is, okay, I have, I wrote my book about Burning Man philosophy, The Scene That Became Cities, before I wrote Turn Your Life Into Art, and yet those books have reversed in order for me in some ways, in which I see Turn Your Life Into Art as the way in which you learn how to do these things personally. You and your small group of friends, if you want to do this, if you want to engage in this kind of activity, this kind of art, if you want to have these kinds of experiences, here's the how-to manual for how you do that. And then the Burning Man book, The Scene That Became Cities, in my mind, has very much become a book about how, okay, if you want to take this and turn this into a culture, what could that be like? Not what will this be like, not what does this have to be like, but how could this work? How would this work? And it turns out that a culture that is rooted in psychomagic, that is trying to be a medium for these kinds of experiences, would value radical self-expression and radical self-reliance And communal effort and participation and immediacy and these other things. These are things that it would do in order to enhance that experience and make this possible, lubricate it, facilitate it. And one of the things that I wrote about in The Scene That Became Cities is the way in which you have this reciprocal relationship between that kind of culture and the members in it. Because culture really only works if you internalize it, right? Otherwise, it's just a series of rules that you reluctantly follow. Culture really works when you—it it is intrinsically motivated, when you value it for its own sake, and therefore you internalize the way it works, and you try to live up to that. And Burning Man culture does a remarkable job of that because It is a culture that is invested in the individual visions and experiences of its members. Burning Man is a culture that says, we want to help you radically express yourself. We want to help you engage in communal effort and participate. We want to take your idiosyncratic, weird vision that maybe you don't understand, and certainly we don't, but we want to take that thing that you feel compelled to do and create an environment where it will be easier to do it and there will be volunteers who will help you with that and you go explore that we're here to help and a culture that does not move in a straight line it's unpredictable it's rocky it's chaotic but the people who take advantage of it become deeply invested in it because it is the medium through which they express their intrinsic desires they're in the things that are most important to them, their daemons are able to more easily express themselves in this environment and find acceptance. And when the risks go badly and they collapse and fall on their asses, there were people there to help them up and say, that was amazing. Let's try that again. People become deeply attached to that culture. They internalize that. And a simpler way of saying that is, is that when you get really good at doing what you love, you get a lot of practice in loving. And so you become better at loving. and, This is what a culture of psychomagic allows people to do. This is, to me, the essence of the communal aspect of this, which is that the more you get better at expressing your authenticity through psychomagic, the more authentic you become and the more authentically you are able to engage with a community. And the more a community does that, the more it is able to authentically engage with itself and its members. And you get a profound impact, a profound collaborative experience that just goes on and on and accelerates and accelerates.
1: Well, as if on cue, my daughter just arrived because what I wanted to say, come here, Ada, what I wanted to say to you in response to all of that was that 174. you say, how safe can you make it before you cut off, cut people off from the experience you're aiming for? And I was just like, this is what you're talking about here is parenting. Mm. Like, this, is, this is the, this is the funny thing. Cause you know, when I, you know, Mitch who Mitch Mignano, who did his, Graduate work with William Irwin Thompson and Arthur mm-hmm. on Burning Man as you know, the future of the city as a playground, right? Mm. That whole piece of it and the way that it's um, unwritten, like can like Sisyphean last chapter of my uncompleted book manuscript that I think I'm just going to have to hold off into a second book is future is cute and playful and it's about pedamorphosis as a trend in the developmental bias of evolution and how Mm. actually like it's easier for evolution to lose features than it is to gain features Mm -hmm. so in all sorts of different organisms that humans are an especially acute case of this where we represent resemble the larval form my vertebrates are the larval form of the free swimming thing that eventually anchors itself to a rock and becomes a sea squirt or a tunic yeah. and loses its head because it no longer has to orient itself in motion because it's oriented within a current and it's just absorbing food. And then humans relative to our nearest primate ancestors are the juvenile form of those because we're hyper And so we had to maintain neuroplasticity as well as like yeah. loss of hair over our bodies, so that we can read our expressions more easily and and so, like all of this stuff, I think about what the future of the human species looks like, and I know I'm not the only person who has said this, like the uh, image of the gray alien as perhaps a you know an intimation yeah. of the future of the human species is like they none of them really exist on their own, they're all mind linked telepathic communal group and they're almost fetal in appearance, small, no, no nose, diminished mouth. are I don't know if you ever saw the remake of the day the earth stood still where Keanu Reeves is the ambassador of the alien mm-hmm. race. And at the end of the film, when he dies, he's like, don't worry about it. Like I'm just like an avatar. Like my information is uploaded into this mothership. And I'm, mm-hmm. this thing is just a shell that I'm interfacing with you. So I think about all of this crazy science fiction stuff and, Evo Bio stuff in relation to everything that you're saying and relationship to everything that has been said about the state as a parent, the mm-hmm. way that institutions are the are there to provide structure for people. And it's interesting because like, yeah, if the point is, you know, and you see this, you're living in San Francisco where I was talking to architects who recently, Kat Dovyanko, who worked with, met through the Long Now Foundation and Nick. Bryceowitz cat was telling me about how she consulted with all these tech firms that had offices that were effectively playgrounds and just you go to the office and it's there's like ball pits and beanbags and like all of this stuff yeah. and so this question of like who's the inmates are running the asylum though basically right. this right. is what fascinates me about this like, the department of public works like these people are pirates like there's just it's yeah this question of like the sort of involution of child and adult in the evolution of the human communal thing and mm-hmm. whatever it is that we are transforming into as a species and whatever the, whatever our biospheric noospheric daemon is urging us to become as and I, that's the last thing I think I would really love to hear you riff on is this is the parenting piece. Oh no, there is one more thing. But like let me get that one from you first.
0: Sorry, can you repeat that last part you cut off for a moment?
1: Oh, I was just saying that's there's two more pieces, but this whole nugget that I've just unpacked for you, that's what I want to hear you riff on. And then there's this one last little flag, a cherry on top that I want to ask you about after that. Thank you. Yeah. That's my daughter was just in here like playing with a bunch of noisy it's sure. like a bag full. It was, it was perfect. It's like it's perfect for the. Was, we're talking about. exactly what we were talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. Please, I'd love to hear you speak so to that I'll, piece of it.
0: I'll riff on this, but I don't know that it will go anyplace satisfactory because I have, in many ways, stopped doing that kind of really big picture thinking because I feel like the world is no longer as amenable to it as it used to be. One of the common themes that I have written about in a newsletter that I send out to my Patreon supporters, it's called the Apocalypse Cabaret Newsletter, and the Apocalypse Cabaret has been very much a phrase that I've been using. I've actually put on events called the Apocalypse Cabarets, and I have an Apocalypse Cabaret manifesto, and I send out the occasional Apocalypse Cabaret newsletter. But one of the themes that falls under this is that we live in epistemologically uncertain times that if art and culture are the magic spells that we cast to make the world comprehensible, we live in a time in which they are very much unraveling. That not just in a major political sense, the Pax Americana, but you know, in the degree to which there has been a global cultural consensus, it is unraveling. And this makes the world less knowable in profound ways. And that's not unique to this time. Every period that we can look back at that has had these kinds of major upheavals have been filled with both brilliantly innovative and batshit crazy ideas swimming around. It's no accident, for example, that the Industrial Revolution was also a period that became a major revival of occultism, that prior to not... During the rise of the Nazis in Germany, you saw all of these very weird claims being made about events that were happening and things that were going on. Epistemologically uncertain times throw open the gates of what is knowable and of what is actually happening, of what is possible. And we live very much in a period like that, and I have found it increasingly difficult to make large scale assertions, predictions, claims about what's going on in macro. In truth, I have a hard enough time just figuring out what is true and what is meaningful on the micro scale. And so I have increasingly been focused on what can I say about what is right in front of me? What can I say about What can I say about what works in this moment here and now with the people I am with? And I don't mean this to say that we are in a post-truth environment in which truth no longer matters or is no longer real. On the contrary, I think truth matters even more because it is so damn hard to find. But I am finding in my own work that it is simply no longer useful, and I don't have anything that I regard as really useful to say, to talk about those kinds of macro trends. And so I don't think it's an accident that my art experiences have gotten increasingly smaller as time has gone on, that I have gone from a practice a bunch of years ago where I was doing things with bigger crowds and trying to pull in hundreds of people to practice that is very focused on creating intense and meaningful experiences with one other person, or, you know, five or six other people, that no question that my art, my psychomagical practice has gotten smaller. And I don't think to its detriment, on the contrary, I feel more in command of my art and my craft than I ever have before. But it's, I've stopped being a theorist in many ways of the larger movements. And so i Where are we going? What is our newospheric Diamond? Which is a wonderful way of phrasing it, by the way. That was great. But I think that's up for grabs. I think that in a way that I find surprisingly literal, the magic spells that we have cast through art and culture to make the world comprehensible and meaningful and to protect us from raw chaos and possibility have been unraveled. And to the extent we can't just stitch it back up by making claims about the big picture. That work really happens. It begins at the micro level. I can't uh, I can't make the world comprehensible on a macro scale, but if you put me in a room with somebody, I'm actually remarkably good at helping them find their own teleology and their own meaning and helping them connect to that in some profound way. For me, that's where the action is.
1: This is awesome because I wanted to talk about this... It is a Jurassic Park moment. Spoke about this when we had you on the show last, when Burning Man couldn't happen because of COVID. And so it went virtual. Yeah. And ephemeralized, fused into everything, and feels like Burning Man now. It's strange. It's it's got this character to it that I cannot quite this is probably true in San Francisco and elsewhere that, you know, that we're on the precipice of something here at this moment in history. And these works that we've been discussing speak to this. So yeah, I, I wonder.
0: And I honestly don't know on, on, on the larger scale. I, I I used to make claims. I used to have theories. I used to make predictions and, at this moment, honestly, I don't know. I, I can see the way the world is unraveling. I can make observations about that, but predictions. But no, but what I can do, and what I find, for me at least, the utility of psychomagic right now, is that it helps me and it helps me help others find the true and the meaningful and the profound and the whimsical in the moment we are in, in the moment that we are actually having. That I may not be able to cast spells that make the world whole, but in this moment, you and me, here, us together, I have the tools that I can make this authentic and meaningful and even, dare I go there, healing and restorative, that we can stitch that much of the world back together.
1: There's a final piece here. This is, it just cracked me up so hard. Because you gave me a copy of your book. You gave me a mm-hmm. physical book. And then I took it out. And for the first time that I ventured into the bay in years, in January, I had it with me on the plane. And I left it on a, on a plane. I lost oh. the book. I had, to, I had a digital copy. And then at the very end of your book, you say, finding it like that. A book like this with no provenance, no history, no information at all, just waiting for you would have been a profound and uncanny invitation. Of course, you'd look at it. Of course, you'd open it. And then you'd find a description of a surreal and extraordinary art scene, and ex- ex- an explanation of the psyche, of the course, of the elements, psychomagic promising that if you do this, if you do, your life will change. It's just like funny because it's like somebody somebody found that book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You made those conditions happen. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me when you told me back when that you'd left it on the plane. It didn't even occur to me. But yes, suddenly when you started talking about it now, I realized where you were going with that. And it just, oh my God, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here we are. That's often the essence of these moments. I find that in life, these kinds of opportunities appear and the question is are we ready for them in that moment? And sometimes we're not, in which case we have this experience of burying them, of running away, of saying no, and sometimes we are, in which case it is very much like walking through a magical doorway picking up a magical grimoire, and nothing is the same after that. Yeah.
1: Well, shucks. <laughs> Caveat, this has been extraordinary.
0: Michael, thank you for this. Yeah, it has.
1: I really Appreciate you being on the show. And I hope that people simmer in this. Do you have any final thoughts? You've just glanced off the iceberg of the extraordinary wealth of story. And this book itself is a psychomagical act. Like it's reading it transformed mm. me. Oh, thank you. And I would just love to know what you have to say to people.
0: Well, in many ways, what I have to say to people is the book. It's interesting. I, After I published my book on Burning Man philosophy, my writing about Burning Man dropped. I more, mostly said what I had to say. I think in some ways, there, I'm still engaging in my own psychomagical practice, I'm still moving in different directions, and maybe I'll have in at some point a lot more to say about that. But at the moment, the vast majority of what I have to say is contained in that book. And is I suppose I should emphasize you were, you were talking earlier about the communal aspect of this, that I didn't invent this. I have interpreted, I have synthesized, but you know, there were In addition to Hodorowski and all who came before him, there were 30 years of artists and anti-artists and pranksters and 'er ne'er-do-wells in the San Francisco Bay Area who created the culture that I then came into and learned from and was able to synthesize into something like this. And it has very much changed my own life. I am a completely different person. We you started off this conversation asking about me and going all the way back, and I said, yeah, there was always this sense that I had when I was much younger that there was a kind of experience that was possible that I didn't know how to do or didn't know how to access, but it seemed like it was there. And this very much, that's what I discovered here. I discovered a community of people who were doing that. And being part of that enriched my life profoundly. And I am so grateful. But what I've also discovered, and this is the paradox, is that the more you do this kind of thing for a utilitarian goal, the less impactful and profound and even helpful it is that there are practices in life, the most magical, the most extraordinary that you do for their own sake. And you let them you let what happens then emerge. I have discovered that the things that we want to do for their own sake, as opposed to as a tool to get someplace else are the things that are most valuable and often the things that we talk about the least and that the more we can orient ourselves to them and think about them clearly and engage in practices that bring them up, the more delightful and rich life is, the more meaning it has, the less tragic it becomes. So, I suppose I would say that the gateway into psychomagic, the gateway into all of the things that I think are best in life come from what you personally want to do for its own sake and not because it's what you're supposed to do or because it will get you somewhere. What do you value unconditionally?
1: And then we just had like bizarre (laughs) strange... What the hell? (laughs) Here we are talking about like being at the precipice of mystery and then just
0: this. It's perfect. Just yeah. like you leaving that book on the plane. Got a perfect. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was, wow. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show and for your work and God, I'm inspired by your stuff and I really just do you have any final shout outs or statements or
0: no just just that it's been a pleasure I'm, I've really enjoyed this and that I very much look forward to finding out what happens next awesome
1: thanks again for listening future fossils is an independent podcast with no ad sponsors Entirely funded by community support, and I love it that way. I thank you for everything you do to help keep this river flowing. You can find me at michaelgarfield.substack.com, Patreon.com/slash/michaelgarfield, or at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram if you want to reach out. We have a Discord server that I have reopened to the public dig into the show notes for links to that and much much else and have a most excellent aeon